And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. This is the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show presented by Tops. Check out Tops Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Tops baseball cards. Derek Van Riper here with Keith Law. It is Friday, October 1st. We are entering the final weekend of the 2021 season. We still have possible Game 163 scenarios on tap, so we're not going to really unpack those. We're just going to enjoy them this weekend and see if we get bonus baseball on Monday. But Keith recently wrote up, his choices for all the major awards, including some down-ballot options. We're going to dig into a lot of the down-ballot options, the players that had great seasons that we haven't been talking about all year long, right? We've talked about Shohei Otani versus Vlad Jr. for the AL MVP for most of the summer, and we've talked about all the candidates for the NL MVP award for most of the summer. But once you get down to the bottom half of those lists, you get to some more players who've had fantastic seasons, and I think we want to dig into what they did, how they did it, and what is likely to happen with those players going forward. Uh, so, Keith, I wanted to start today with Nathan Evaldi because he made the list uh, down ballot for AL MVP. He had him ninth in the piece. People should check it out over at The Athletic. But he was also on the AL Cy Young Award list as well, understandably so. And Evaldi has really, I think, gone on to exceed my expectations, maybe in a way similar to what Charlie Morton has done over the course of his career. Injuries were a big part of the story. You know, earlier in his career, it was a big velo fastball that was probably just too flat. And he's a lot more dynamic now than he used to be. And I'm starting to believe in Evaldi as a legitimate, if not consistent, like top 10 MLB starter, a guy that will continue to churn out seasons that are more like in that top 25 range, which is very valuable. And he is, right? He's a two-time Tommy John guy, I believe. Which, if I'm right about that, I know he's had two major elbow surgeries. I think they were both the ligament replacement surgery, specifically what we call Tommy John. That would make him one of the only starters to be a two-time Tommy, Tommy John guy. And even more interesting, a guy who is peaking after the second one. I'm not saying the surgery made him peak. Please don't go out and get two Tommy John surgeries just for kicks because you think it'll make you throw harder. But he has also really reinvented himself as a pitcher, I would say, multiple times since he was originally a prospect with the Dodgers, which is going way back. And he was just an arm strength guy. He made my top 100 prospects towards the back end one time uh, when I was still at ESPN when he was a Dodger. And it was basically, this guy throws really hard. He misses some bats already. And how could you throw that hard and not eventually have like a decent slider to go with it? And as you said, the fastball was too flat, too straight. It was velocity uberalis, right? Nothing else matters. I'm just going to throw as hard as I can. And he struggled. And multiple teams took shots at him to try to, you know, the Rays in particular, we can, you know, if there's raw materials here, we can help him improve himself. I think he got a little bit better at multiple different stops. It is just now that it's all come together. And he is a far, far more complete pitcher where 
not only is he able to miss more bats, uh, including with the fastball, but he's not walking as many guys. He's not giving up as many home runs. And to the extent that that sticks around, especially makes him especially interesting because if you've got a, I don't care how hard you throw, if you've got a pretty flat fastball, you're going to give up home runs. That's the way the ball works right now. And I happen to believe that the baseball is just different than it was a couple years ago, but that's our reality. Whatever the cause is, if your fastball is pretty hittable, as Eovaldi's used to be, then you're going to be a high home run guy, and that's going to make you much less effective as a starter. And it looks like, you know, we'll see how, how as does he continue this into next year, but so far it looks like he's solved what looked like it would have been a pretty significant problem to make him, I think at one point I comped him to Edwin Jackson. This is a guy everyone's going to want to take a shot at because he throws so hard. And it's easy. It's, I can fix him. Well, this time it worked. Edwin Jackson is still the same guy, was still the same basically for his entire career. He was the same guy. Give him all due credit. He has changed himself. He's improved himself to become this kind of starter as opposed to a just you know a, a you know, 15-year career of untapped potential. By the way, I thought Edwin Jackson was going to get the coverall. I thought he was going to play for all 30 teams. Yeah, right. Yeah. Got about halfway there. The shot, right? Yeah. Impressive. Yeah, he could probably set the Does he have the record? Did he tie Mike Morgan? He might have beaten the record. At least of players that I've been around for as an adult, he has the record. And that's as far back yes. as he to go with a record like that, but uh Yeah. I want to stay with the other pitchers that have surprised us, the other AL Cy Young candidates. I mean, you had Garrett Cole as your winner in the piece. I think that's a a fairly common takeaway but Robbie Ray has had a great season too and he's done some things that I mean I never thought Robbie Ray was gonna be the kind of guy that had good control I I thought maybe passable control was a possibility if everything clicked but he walked 17.9 percent of the batters he faced in the shortened season he ran a double digit walk percentage in three straight full seasons in 2017 to 2019 and he comes out this year keeps the K's and slashes the walk rate to a career-best 6.7%. I mean, he's 244Ks and 188 innings. This is typical Robbie Ray in that regard, but unlike anything else we've ever seen from him in his career here in his age 29 season, I think the question everybody has is, what's next for him? He's a free agent this offseason, and he's going to get a much larger contract than any of us ever would have predicted. Yeah, it's like the Blue Jays traded for Robbie Ray and then this winter sent him home and got Ronnie Ray instead. <laughs> it's his secret twin brother. Robbie Ray looked like he was going to turn into a serviceable back-end starter for a while. He'd miss a lot of at-bats. I think he was a breakout candidate I had one year and he ended up leading the NL in strikeouts. But there was also, he walked too many guys and he was very inefficient. And then so it looked like that's probably what he was going to be. And then the control kept getting worse. It looked like he was going to basically walk himself out of baseball. And I'm trying to think, have been trying to think of a guy who's had this dramatic a turnaround. Granted, it was the short season last year. He was awful, right? He was just unusable. People will probably go back to the Roy Halladay example where Halladay had the worst 40 season, 40 inning pitch season ever and got sent down to a ball to redo his entire delivery. But he was a kid. He was still prospect at that point or, or just barely had lost prospect status. Ray is an established big leaguer who went from you know 30 control or worse. I mean, I think the only th- way is worse is if you're like, you know, you got the yips, right? You're Jason Nabergall and everything's to the backstop. You know, and Ray went from that to above average control. Who who does that? Right? Who what other examples do we have 
we've had guys improve their control and improve their command. We actually expect guys to improve their command as they get into their mid to late 20s um, with experience, especially guys who are particularly athletic or have really good deliveries. But in race case, it was not command. You couldn't even talk about command with Ray. How can you talk about command when he just walked the last three guys before you got the word command out of your mouth? Mm-hmm. So for him to turn around like this is, you know, when writing about this, it was sort of, hey, if Ray wins, that's a great story. If he ends up getting the AL Cy Young Award, it's a really great story. I wouldn't vote for him first. He would be on my ballot for sure. But I would not also be upset to see him win because what an awesome story. I'm I'm a fan of that. I'm a fan of guys who go out and just massively improve themselves like that. And to your point, don't you have to... Would you want to run the risk of walking away from a guy as good as Robbie Ray was, was this year? who's basically number one starter because, yeah, it might be a fluke. It's entirely possible that it's a fluke and he's going to go back to walking the park next year. But you can't dismiss 180-something innings and just assume it's a fluke. You just completely assume it's one, right? Especially it's, the, it's not – we have better data now and teams have even better data than we have that would – they can look and say, I haven't heard anybody say that it's a fluke. It doesn't look like it's a fluke. The stuff is good. The location is good. The delivery is good. Every, he's checking all the boxes. Don't you have to assume it's more likely that he'll continue for it? You can't assume he's going to stay this way, but you can assume there's a good chance he stays this way. Because that's probably a better way to phrase it. In which case, what are you offering him? Three, four-year deal? Probably looking for five. Yeah. I would go out there and look for five and, you know actually be happy very happy with four yeah four for 80 four for 90 might be a possibility for robbie ray i I would absolutely be looking for 20 plus look if he pitches like he pitched this year he's a 30 million dollar guy right a year yeah and i think you know in my mind there's a couple things i think about with robbie ray 188 innings this season that's enough of a statistical sample to believe that he does in fact own the skill it's that old track record that everyone's worried about but if you think about it more in terms of the way like a Marcel projection works, where the most recent season is about half the weight of that projection, I think it goes 50% on the previous season, 30% on the year before that, and 20% two years ago, then even in that sort of mindset, if you're trying to regress him to something like normal, he'd still be like an 8 to 9% walk rate guy. And that's still be way good. better than he was before, especially with all the bats that he misses. So if he's a 375 ERA 120 whip guy over a four-year deal with a boatload of strikeouts it, it's a lot like expectations for Evaldi. you're happy with that at that price those mm-hmm. are hard pitchers to find so this transformation really is uh, amazing and i'd be on board with a team giving him a deal like that i wouldn't be mad if my favorite team gave him a contract like that i wouldn't be upset that's speaking in generalities my favorite team has a lot of pitching and shouldn't allocate resources that way but that's not the <laughs> point what well, by the way can we talk about to so the blue jays at the end of, what, the trade deadline last year, picked up Ray for basically nothing. Picked up Taiwan Walker, who's had a perfectly serviceable season for the Mets this year. It's probably, it's certainly the best season Walker has had since the injuries started. What is that? Like? I think I saw it was his highest innings pitch total since 2016. Um, and so they picked him up and then they give the one-year deal to Marcus Semien, who's obviously very high on my MVP ballot. Like, hey, if you're a Jays fan, and I know a lot of people have been dragging that front office since they took over from Anthopolis, but how can you argue with some of the moves they've made in total of the moves they've made in the last 13 months? That's a pretty good run of identifying players who got better after the Blue Jays acquired. Absolutely. And when you 
find those players at reasonably low cost or very low cost. That's that's a great skill to have as an organization. Mm-hmm. And they're obviously spending up at the top. They've got the higher end prospects coming through kind of as a group right now. Everything seems to be clicking in Toronto. And it's part of why that, that AL East is about as nasty as it's been in the last decade or so because it runs a clear four teams deep for the foreseeable future. I was just yep. digging through. There's a great page at Fangraphs. I don't know if people even realize this exists, but if you go to Fangraphs and you go to the leaders tab, there's a season stat grid and you can look at year to year changes in any stat you want. And I was trying to see like, is there anybody who's improved Walker Ray as much as Robbie Ray has improved ah. from last year to this year? The closest I could find going all the way back to 2006 was Aroldis Chapman from 2011 to 2012 made a massive step forward, 11.5% okay. improvement in walk rate. Craig Kimbrell, a few years after that, had a big improvement. But a lot of times you see guys looking at the multi-year view of this, they'll, they'll go up for a year and they'll come back down. It's like the regression back to the mean. It's just kind of both right. sides of their, their range of outcomes. Um, so it, it's incredibly rare to see that. I think the, the leader last season was Framber Valdez. He was the pitcher who had the most improved walk rate with a minimum of 50 innings pitch. But that page is awesome. It's one of those things that's been on Fangrass for a long time. And somebody finally tipped me off to it this year. And I was like, oh, I could, I could waste yeah, you gotta a, send me a that day. On Slack. Yeah, I'll, I'll pass yeah. that one along. But I could waste a yeah. week on that page uh, <laughs> just looking at stuff and like, how, well, how does this work? How do, how do these trends change over time? Uh, the last pitcher that I thought that we should talk about from the batch that you wrote about for the AL Cy Young is Carlos Rodon. And I, I think the where do we go from here question is really just a health question. The stuff is yeah. kind of like peak Rodon stuff, right? It's the same fastball slider changeup that we saw early in his career. The velo came back, but I have a lot of doubts about his ability to hold up and, and stay healthy over a full season in 2022. Yeah, that's the and he wasn't good uh, in his most recent outing. It wasn't as good. His stuff was down. Credit to I think it was Craig Calcaterra pointed that out in his newsletter that the stuff is the velocity wasn't where you want it to be. And that would suck, right? That would just be a horrible scene for Rodon to come all the way back, be as good as he's been, and then to break down again. And if you're the White Sox now, you're, you're okay, coasting into the postseason. This was probably just a tune-up start. Obviously, they'll get some extra time off. But do you plan... Do you try to plan your playoff rotation in a way that Rodon doesn't pitch as much? That you're trying to can't avoid him, probably, but maybe you can just maximize his days off and he's a fourth starter when you need one. You maybe try to push him back anytime there's a possibility because um I'm assuming there's nothing seriously wrong with him that he's just wearing down from the longest season he's had him forever. But still, you've got to think, hey, we got a guy here who's got, you know, who's got could have a whole career ahead of him as a number one, number two type starter. We have to treat him, handle him with kid gloves relative to the other three starters. They have other two other, sorry, three other really good, well above average starters in that rotation. Um, so you could do that. You have the flexibility to do that with Rodon. And I, I don't have an answer. I'm just saying that's a, that is a conundrum for the front office right now. How much do we ride Rodon in this off season, especially, you know, you don't have him forever versus protecting a guy who's, Honestly, his career looks like it's just starting. Like his peak is probably just starting. Yeah, I think it's a lot like the way the Nationals have had to manage Steven Strasburg. If you want to be optimistic mm-hmm. about how much they could get out of him in the future, high volume seasons for Strasburg are generally going to be more in that 150 to 175 range. I know he reached 200 innings twice, but especially at this stage of his career, I don't think we're getting back anywhere close to that from him. 
in the future. So if you lower the expectations on Rodon long term, I think you're going to end up a lot happier uh, with what you end up getting. I think in the playoffs especially, the solution might be to do something like use Rodon, go through the lineup once if the velo dips, let him keep facing hitters. As soon as you see some signs of trouble, you bring in Michael Kopech and you get a lefty-righty tandem option that maybe combined you can get six or seven innings from those guys every fourth game in the postseason. Right. That, to me, seems like right. maybe the best way to to get around it without overtaxing Rodon from a health perspective. Right. Uh, Rodon's a free agent after this season. I think I read that correctly. So that, uh, I just looked it up to make sure I had it right because I couldn't remember if he had one more year, but that makes this decision, by the way, even worse. Like the incentive for the White Sox is to say, just use him, right? If he breaks down for the next team, so what? I mean, you could actually use him with the full intention of not trying to resign him. I am not advocating that. I think there's a pretty big ethical problem with that. However, um, you could do that. You could say, we're trying to win. And the best way to win is to pitch Carlos Rodon as much as we can um, in the postseason because there will be plenty of outings, where plenty of games where he's the best option. I, mean, I would rather have him start – we'd rather have healthy Carlos Rodon start a game than Dylan Cease in the playoffs which is not to slag Cease necessarily, but just to say that Rodon is a better option. And so do you use him more as a result, figuring he's probably gone after the season? We'll go replace him. we go replace him with somebody else. Yeah, I think that's uh, really unfortunate, too, that he's not in a position to have that long-term deal already uh, in right. place. And I think if we had a comeback player of the year award that we were going to throw out there for the podcast, he'd probably win it. Yeah. God, I'm sure I'm forgetting somebody just because it's not one I think about very much, but it's a pretty big comeback, right? From injuries that look like they would derail his career. I guess there's probably like a hierarchy in comeback players of the year, right? Like the guy who comes back from cancer or life-threatening illness first, guy who comes back from career-threatening injuries second, maybe? Yeah, I think that's generally how our minds tend to work. I mean, Eduardo Rodriguez, I think... He could be yes. a candidate for something like that. A very scary situation for him with myocarditis. Didn't pitch in 2020. But I think Rodon is someone that I think threw about 42 and a third innings in the previous two seasons combined. Got non-tendered. Came back with minimal expectations to get what he provided for the White Sox. That's that's comeback player of the year worthy for sure. Uh, if, if I had a, a vote on such a matter. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Let's go to the NL side here for just a moment. We talked a ton about these guys because this group has been back and forth all season. You know, Wheeler, Burns, Scherzer, Bueller. Brandon Woodruff seems like the guy people don't talk about. And then going one step further than that, I mean, the list only has five people on it. But Freddie Peralta, like, talk about players that I 
in my wildest dreams, could not have imagined a season like the one that he has turned in. He was in the bullpen last year, showed flashes mm-hmm. from really day one as a big leaguer of being a guy that could be a good, maybe like mid-rotation guy with strikeouts. That was probably the ceiling expectation for Freddie Peralta. He's got an ERA under three, a whip under one, 195 Ks and 144 in the third innings. The main reason they've been careful with the workload is because of how little he threw a year ago. What right. What's next for him? I mean, because he's part of a big three in Milwaukee that's a, a huge part. If the Brewers are able to win the World Series this year, it's probably because of contributions they're getting from Peralta in addition to Corbin Burns and Brandon Woodruff atop that rotation. Yeah, well, Burns and Woodruff were like the known quantities, right? They were the, they're, they've been maybe better than we expected, but we expected them to be good. Both guys were top 100 prospects for me in the past, but Peralta until this year was basically a one pitch guy, right? It was all fastballs and his four seamer is not especially hard, but it missed bats up in the zone. It had great secondary characteristics. It had a pretty good spin rate for a four seamer. He located it well up in the zone and he could miss some bats with that. So I always went, honestly, I went back and forth with him. So, okay, well, it's, that's really good. But if you, that's what you're throwing three quarters of the time, you don't really have a good secondary pitch. How are you a starter? Well, this year, he's added a slider. He's used his curveball less and his slider that basically came out of nowhere. And it turns out has been extremely effective. Okay, now you can be a starter. You have passed the starter test, <laughs> the first starter test, which is you need a second pitch. Often I would argue you need a third pitch, but I won't quibble once you have a second pitch and both your fastball and that second pitch and the slider are as effective as they've been. And he's always been a strike thrower. That's not really an issue. Um, and to his credit, despite throwing a lot of four seamers up in the zone, he's not been homer prone this year. So what I, there are little things I would like to see him improve going forward. For example, he has a change up and really doesn't use it very much, but he's still using that more than he did in the past. Also, he's using his four seamer less than he ever has before. And that's probably good. You know, just man cannot live on fastball alone. That's just not really like it's very very few starters can do that i feel like bartolo cologne maybe did that for a while and even then he would go like when he was young and he was throwing you know upper 90s i remember seeing him in person when it was basically all four and two seamers but he was a unicorn right very very few guys can do that even if you throw especially hard and so for peralta to add um you know now he's got the one the one clear out pitch among secondaries could he throw the changeup more? Could he be more effective than it is? Maybe it's not. Maybe it's not good enough for him to throw it more. But that's the one thing I would look at and say, all right, this may be. Now that the slider is there, the next gating factor that determines what his ceiling actually is might be that instead, rather than hey, he's already got a breaking ball. He still throws the curveball sometimes. It's been effective. It's probably going to be more effective the less he throws it, and that's great. That's fine. Um, I would like to see another pitch there to help him improve against lefties. And he does throw the changeup very, very almost exclusively the lefty. So the idea is there. They've obviously the, he and the Brewers have the right philosophy for how to use his arsenal. I would like to see how that pitch develops. Cause maybe he's a, maybe he's a two, maybe he's better than that. And I wonder if that third pitch will be the thing that determines. It. Yeah. Having a breakout like that while throwing the fastball so much less is the amazing underlying part of the Freddie Peralta experience. And, I think it is really encouraging that he has that that changeup at least working against lefties, as you said. That's a key weapon for him. Probably keeps that home run rate more in check, too. Let's get to some of the down-ballot MVP candidates that you wrote up, or at least put on your list. And 
One that no one talks about is Brian Reynolds in Pittsburgh because, well, he's in Pittsburgh, and that's just unfortunate for him right now because he's a really good player. Uh, yeah. You know, my my thought coming out of 2019, that rookie season, was this is nice, but there's not another level here. This is what he is. He's a good everyday sort of player, and you know, for a, a second division team, Probably hits higher in the lineup than he should and maybe makes a few all-star games. But that's all we're going to get from Brian Reynolds. Well, no, that's probably wrong because he's popped a <laughs> five-war season. And he's really improved in a lot of ways, too. Lowest K rate we've seen from him so far as a big leaguer, career-best walk rate, and more power than I expected, too. So you know, what's next for Brian Reynolds? He's under control for a long time. He's going to be a pirate for the foreseeable future unless they could see him as someone that brings back a lot more young talent you know what's the what's the next move if you're ben charrington yeah i would trade him i would absolutely trade him supposedly they discussed trading him at least to atlanta at the trade deadline this year and i would 100 percent look at how much i could get for trading him more because just because of the state of the club right this club is not pittsburgh is not contending soon they're probably not contending in the next certainly not contending in the next two years and you know, not that Reynolds is still only 26. If you kept him right up through free agency, you'd basically get all his peak years. But there's so much value in a player as good as he is, who still has, was he have three years of club control remaining? That's worth a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you can convert that value that is still there because of Reynolds' contract status as well as the player that he is into adding multiple younger pieces, you take on some extra risk, but you set up the timing a little bit better because I think the Pirates farm system is good. I think the major league club is not good. I also think there are some players on the major league club who should be better. And now that they're making some changes to parts of the big league coaching staff, we may see that, but I can't imagine them being a good enough team while Brian Reynolds is in the uniform there that for them to be better off keeping him than taking the best offer they can for him. And maybe that's this off season. Maybe you got this winter when, you know, I always say that you're, but when you've got a big player to trade, I believe it's better to try to do it in the offseason because everyone bids uh, or almost everyone bids. Everyone thinks they're contending and teams have budget left. Whereas in the middle of the season, a lot of teams don't want to add payroll and a lot of teams that thought they were going to contend aren't contending. Minnesota went into last year, thought they were contending, turned out they weren't contending. There's just a lot more belief, hey, we can win this year. So I would absolutely put Reynolds out there. You don't have to trade him because of the contract status, but I would certainly try to put him out there and see um, and see what I could get for him. And I will say too, you know, Reynolds to me, he was a second round pick of the Giants. I um, remember talking to some people with the Giants and they took him too. I'd ranked him as a first rounder. I'm like, there's power in there. We're just not seeing it yet because he was a very passive hitter in college. He ran lots of deep counts. He was comfortable running deep counts, but it also led to a lot of pitchers pitches that he would either just not swing at strike out or, put into play and not put into play the way that obviously you'd want a hitter with his kind of potential impact to put into play. I think he's become more aggressive without giving up his walks, but he's go he's hunting better pitches earlier in the count. And it looks like the pirates have done enough to improve his swing, to get a little more aloft in it. They haven't overhauled it, but it's definitely a little more optimized for launch angle. And I think that's probably why we're seeing more of the power. Yeah, it's uh, the lowest ground ball rate of his career. So every time you see that mm. number tracking down, yeah, the ball's in the air. It's either a fly ball or a line drive. So that certainly helps when you're tapping we like that those. power. Yeah, that, that's always those are good. always a trend I'm looking for when we see increased power. Did you get rid of some ground balls? Oh, good. Yeah. Maybe you can hold some of that power. 
if you're looking at Reynolds, how long can he stay in center field? That's where the Pirates play him. Are you trading for him to play him in center field, or are you just kind of using him there if you have to and planning on playing him in a corner? You know, outs above average loves him in center. And that's, to me, the best of the public defensive metrics. I'm surprised. I always thought he'd be, I thought he might stay in center. I never, ever thought he'd be this good in center. Absolutely not. Despite the fact he could run a bit and he was athletic, I would bet if you looked at everything I ever wrote about Brian Reynolds, I never said he'd be a plus defender in center. But he was this year. So, I mean, as long as the, even at the end of the day when I'm looking at a player, even if I think it maybe doesn't look that pretty, but if outs above average, which is based right off the StatCast data, has him this far as 10 runs above average in center this year, and he played a little bit in, in left also. They've got him that good in center. My God, just leave him there. So I would trade for him as a center fielder. Unless I had you know, an elite guy out there, right? If you have a 70 defender in center, fine. You put Reynolds in a corner, and he maybe has like a Brett Gardner-type defensive impact playing in a corner instead. Um, but hell, I would... I would if I'm Charrington, I'm marketing him as a center fielder. Hey, I got a center fielder with power and on-base skills. Why not? Yeah, plenty of teams could use Brian Reynolds, and it would be smart for the Pirates to make that move given their needs and their timetable to be a playoff-caliber team again. Staying in the NL Central, you know who's had a great season and part of the Cardinals' 17-game win streak, which did come to an end on Wednesday? Paul Goldschmidt. He's kind of turning mm-hmm. in a vintage Paul Goldschmidt season. I think the only number that doesn't kind of hold up to peak Goldschmidt, the OBP is a little lower these days, 367 instead of 400 plus. But everything's there, even that little bit of speed too. a dozen bags on top of the 31 homers he's popped. He's probably going to finish with over 100 runs and over 100 RBIs. Again, he's done that a handful of times in his career too. What is it about Goldschmidt that leads people to keep kind of underrating and, and discounting him? I mean, it's always pretty quiet, right? He's a quiet sort of MVP. I mean, both quiet as a person, but also the maybe it's because part one of the reasons I didn't rate him highly at all as a prospect too is if you look at the swing, you look at his home runs, a lot of line drives. It's not the big flies. He's not a highlight generator. So much of what he does well is not flashy. It is not exciting, you know, unless you're a Cardinals fan, obviously it's exciting if he's helping you win, but they're not automatically highlight plays. He's a good defender at first base. First base defense, generally not that sexy. He's a really, really smart base runner, but he's not a burner. So I wonder if it's just that we don't see him as much because of that. And yet then you look at the end of the season, it's like Paul Goldschmidt was one of the 10 best players in the National League. How'd I miss that? And maybe that's why. I mean, I would guess all right, this I'm making this up, and if somebody can wants to verify or dispute this, feel free. But maybe have more highlights for Tyler O'Neill, who's nowhere near the hitter that Goldschmidt is. But Tyler O'Neill is a weightlifter playing baseball, and so when Tyler O'Neill gets a hold of one, it's a pretty big fly ball, and Goldschmidt just doesn't hit him like that. And again, that's part of why I underrated him because I saw that swing and I saw the power he had, and that's not going to be a 30 home run type bat. It's not. You know, there's nothing elect. It's not electric bat speed. He doesn't have that kind of loft in his finish. But it turns out he's so strong. He hits the ball so hard that even if the line drive is maybe not, um, you know, sorry, if the launch angle is not exactly what you'd expect for big home runs, he hits it on the screws really, really often. And that's where the that's where the power comes from. It's just not. I was going to say it's not the kind that shows up on Sports Center. Does Sports Center show baseball anymore? 
Do people still watch Sports Center? I haven't watched it in a long time. You know, I, I like the the SVP version of Sports Center once in a while, mm-hmm. but that's about it. Yeah. If I'm you know when I see Sports Center in airports. Mm. I'm walking by an airport, I'm like, oh. Hey, I used to work for them. I don't actually say that. That'd be horrible. <laughs> out loud. I'm not that guy. Yeah. No, not out. I say it to myself. You don't find the nearest Remember person saying, hey, used hey I used to work yeah. there. I worked there. Yeah. They'd be like, okay, if you see something, say something. Strange man in the airport. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Delusions of grandeur. Paul Goldschmidt, too, has that longer term extension that he signed with the Cardinals. It was five for 130. Yep. I think I probably chuckled out loud when it happened and. Well, two years in, doesn't look like a horrible move, and it looks like a so skill set's so going to age really gracefully. The eye's still good. There's a ton of red ink on his Statcast page too, so it's not it's not smoke and mirrors. It is a, a baseline that is probably much higher than many of us have been giving him credit for here for these last uh, couple of years. So, uh, how would, how do the Cardinals do it? Well, Paul Goldschmidt's a big part of it. Tyler O'Neill, who you mentioned, is a big part of it too. We think we talked about him last week, just reaching this mm-hmm. level that. I don't know if anybody could have expected that from Tyler O'Neill either. No, and that's a I'm I'm taking the under on him next year. That's that's one I'm not I'm not buying it. Uh, I think the power is real. I don't think he's going to have the consistent contact, consistent good fortune on balls in play. I think it is it's a lot of it's pull power. It's real real power. But what goes with it? He doesn't. His play discipline is not very good. It's never been very good. It's not very good. He's having a great year. Good for them. Good for him. Good for them. Not a guy I'd invest in long term. Like to me, you want the next five years of him or the next five years of Dylan Carlson. I'll take the next five years of Dylan Carlson. And I know that may sound strange because O'Neill just had the better season, but I like Carlson's skill set and growth potential. Um, whereas I think this is this is peak Tyler O'Neill right here. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me at all if they sort of switched value wise. Where if O'Neill went back to being more like a two win player next year and Carlson popped as like a four to five win guy, I think that would be that'd be a story I could buy into based on expectations for those two players. When you get injured, you don't want to wait for answers and options. That's why it may be time to explore the Nano Experience, a revolutionary treatment option designed to help active people get back to the lifestyles they love. Nanotechnology allows surgeons to see inside even the smallest joints and treat orthopedic conditions with a tiny camera and other nano instrumentation, all through a barely there poke hole incision. Wherever you've experienced an injury, whether it be a foot and ankle, hand and wrist, shoulder and elbow, knee or hip, nanoarthroscopy can be used to diagnose and treat your condition in an extremely, minimally invasive way. Don't wait to learn about the revolutionary nano experience and how it could help you or someone you know after an injury. Visit arthrex.info slash theathletic. This is not medical advice and is not meant to be a substitute for advice from your physician. Talk with your physician about your health condition, potential surgical risks, and whether Arthrex products are right for you. Post-operative management is patient-specific and dependent upon your physician's assessment. Individual results will vary. Guys tend to think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort, but it's possible to have it both ways. I'm all set for summer thanks to Mack Weldon. The Vesper polo shirt is so breathable you can wear it on the golf course, but it looks classy enough to wear to a party. The Maverick Tech Chino short is ultra-flexible, and the Pima Crew Neck T-shirt is perfect for those casual weekends. There's no need to be uncomfortable in your clothing ever again. Some guys just want to look good without calling attention to themselves. Mack Weldon Apparel gives you understated good looks for understated confidence. Mack Weldon clothes are designed to fit your style and the demands of modern life. They look like regular clothes but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys who want to look great without even trying. 
Breathable underwear that keeps you cool, dry, and comfy all day. Crazy comfortable but elevated sweatpants. An upgraded classic polo with antimicrobial silver threads. An ultra soft antimicrobial tee for when you need to stay fresh longer. That's the Silver Crew Neck T-shirt. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code MLBSHOW. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Promo code MLB show. I do think Jonathan India, who you have as your selection for the NL Rookie of the Year, is worth talking about again. We've talked about him a little earlier in the season because it was injuries in the minor leagues that really stunted that power. But I think the question I have for you that I didn't throw out there before is, what's next for him? Is there one more level there? Is he going to be a guy that is among the best second baseman in the league for the next you know, three to possibly five years because he does a lot of things very well. Yeah, I, that's a great question because he's 24, right? You think 24-year-old is probably another level there, but where is he? where does he improve from here? 33 doubles and 21 homers. Could some more of those doubles become homers as he gets a little older? Yeah. Do I feel like he's a 30-plus homer guy? All right, ignoring the fact he plays in Cincinnati, which does lower the bar for home runs a little bit. But I don't think it's that kind of guy. Like, I think he's a high doubles guy. I would feel more comfortable predicting that he gets to 45 doubles at some point than 30 home runs, Um, which is still good, right? Just different sorts of players. And hey, he already walks a ton. And he got hit. He's leading the NL in times hit by pitches um, with 22. Could he become a... A you know a three twenty average kind of hitter. That's probably the one path he has to becoming. <clears throat> he's like a four to five WAR player right now. To becoming more than that would mean um, either cutting the strikeout rate, which is not not there's nothing wrong with it, but just putting more balls in play for more hits, or just becoming a higher BABIP guy going forward. That's probably the one path he has to becoming you know, five to six war player, to becoming the best second baseman in the National League. I think it's possible. I would be more comfortable betting on Jonathan India plays the next eight years and is pretty much this kind of player. Maybe 10% better, 5% better, but it's pretty much this kind of player, um, which is obviously really good and great for him. I mentioned this in the piece too. To use 2019 was a disaster. He tried to play through a wrist injury and then doesn't get to show anybody what he can do when he's healthy in 2020. Good for the Reds for being willing to give him a shot so early this season when the previous minor league performance was not there. And he's and he's got 148 games for them. He's basically been an everyday starter for a team that was trying to make the playoffs and they believed in what they saw last year. So I give them credit for willing to take on that risk. Picking nits just for a moment. I think the one thing in his mm-hmm. profile that gives me just a little bit of pause is he's been really pull happy this year. I don't think that's who he'll mm-hmm. be long term as a hitter, but I wonder if if he goes to a more balanced all field sort of approach, if that caps the power and makes what he did from a home run perspective more of a ceiling than a repeated sort of expectation for him going forward. A 51.3% pull percentage is big time. Yep. Yes, it is. I wonder to what extent the ballpark does that to guys um, in Cincinnati, because it is, right? If you have some pull power, it can reward pull power more than a lot of other ballparks. And what doesn't worry me, though, is it hasn't made India a bad hitter overall, right? He's not completely unwilling to use the opposite field pitchers have not exploited him. And then suddenly he's striking out, you know, 30% of the time. If he were doing that, I'd be more 
concerned. You know, that said, if we're talking about just a player's abstract value, right, you want him, you know, not that they're trading him, but if he were somewhere else, would that same approach be as fruitful? Probably not. Yeah, um, I'm with you there. It does pull it a little more at home than on the road, looking at the splits from this year. So yeah, maybe part of it is I'm rewarded for pulling the ball here. So I'm going to pull the ball here because I can. That's not necessarily a bad thing if you can maximize your environment that way. Uh, a few of the the AL MVP candidates that haven't received a ton of attention, maybe one a little more recently who has because he's reached that 30-30 milestone, is Cedric Mullins. And I think we talked about him eh, maybe a month or so ago briefly, just kind of saying, is he on the next Orioles playoff team? Because they have the same sort of issue with Cedric Mullins in Baltimore that the Pirates probably have with Brian Reynolds, where you look at him and say, yeah, he's great, but maybe we need to trade him because we still need so much more in the long run. I guess you could maybe talk yourself into some of the Orioles core being a little closer. I think we talked about that system recently as well. What do you think Mullins actually provides in 2022? Because this is one of the biggest surprises of the season. Yeah, it it really it is a huge surprise. There's nothing in his previous career to indicate that this was coming. I mean, there's just absolutely nothing. Not that he never had tools. I knew guys who were there when they drafted they drafted him way back in 2015. And he was sort of a prospect, but he was, he's an extra outfielder. He's a great kid. He really plays hard. There's a good, you know, he can run some. But he's got 30 home runs this year. He had seven coming into this year. He never hit more than 14. I'm cheating. I'm looking at his fan graphs page. He never had more than 14 home runs in any single season. The most home runs he had in two consecutive seasons was 27. And he has... 30 this year, although that's a partial season. So that's kind of like not really quite apples to apples. Still, he never had anything close to indicating he would develop 30 homer power down the road. And this isolated power is by far the highest he's ever posted in any spot, any single stop anywhere in his career. And it's not like he had some extreme batting average on balls in play that you know, well, that's a total fluke. He's walking more. He's striking out a bit less. He just completely changed himself, changed everything about himself as a hitter. Yeah, I want to say there's going to be some regression next year because there just usually is, right? There just usually when a guy jumps from, he had a negative career war coming into this year and he's at, I'm looking at fan graphs, baseball reference maybe slightly different, but he went from negative 0.4 or negative 0.3 war coming into this year. He's got 5.6 war just this year. So, Odds are he's not going to have 5.6 war again next year. But I would still bet on him being an above average regular. I'm not saying I think he's going to drop to being even a two war guy. I think he's still probably an all star next year. Just maybe he's not a 30 30 guy. Maybe just some little bits of, you know, if even if he wasn't exceptionally lucky this year, he is some of the, uh, you know, if he was a little bit lucky this year, he's a little bit less so next year. And there's what looks like regression, even though he's actually the same player. I just don't see fault here. There's no, you know, just because we're sort of trying to pick apart certain guys. Is this repeatable? Is this repeatable? Is this repeatable? Of a lot of these guys, to me, Mullins is in the Austin Riley category. Now that's real. That's probably who he's going to be. It's just that in, in Mullins' case, I just see no room for further improvement. So it's more than likely he'll give back a little bit. Maybe he's, you know, he's, clo- he's probably going to end up close to six war this year. Okay, maybe he's at 4.7 or so next year. And who cares? That's still a great season. 
I think this is one of the more challenging things about projecting performance is when you have a player who stays healthy for a full season, I don't think you can even project the same volume of playing time for a guy like Mullins the following year. I know Marcus Semien ran to this a couple of years ago and everyone said, well, there's no way he could do this again. Well, he, he did it again, so we were all, we're all wrong for that take. But usually, maxing out your playing time requires even avoiding like day-to-day you know, soft tissue injuries that don't put you on the IL. And everything seems like it has gone right for Mullins. Now, the shape of his future seasons could be 18 homers and 40 steals. Like That could happen, too. Like You could, you could get mm-hmm. more speed, less power in a few instances. He does pull pretty much everything power-wise, but he's also not switch-hitting for the first time in his career. And that's such a, yeah. a, that's such a massive thing that I think I overlooked back in February. If, if, you, were, if you think about a player that has switch-hit for, let's say, eight or ten years ever since high school and they give that up does that give you this path to not always take a leap as much as Mullins but is it the kind of thing that can be overlooked by just the broader community of baseball analysts because I certainly overlooked it in this case well because we just don't have a ton of data on guys like that right there aren't that many guys who drop switch hitting in the majors who switch hit for a little while in the majors and then give it up Remember JT Snow, I think, did that eventually because he was so bad from one side. But usually those guys stop in the Myers, and we have just as many examples of, oh, we're trying to make so-and-so a switch hitter. And sometimes that just makes me, obviously listeners can't see, but I'm doing the, the you know, Captain Picard face palm as best I can. Like I think that's ruined a lot of guys or hurt a lot of guys, you know, often because it's, well, we want to make him have him hit from the left side so he can make better use of his speed. Um and sometimes there are valid reasons to try to encourage guys to switch hit. Nothing is one size fits all here. But I don't know of many examples of major league players. You have been Mullins wasn't established, but he was no longer a rookie at least, who then gave up switch hit. Maybe we should remember him. That's I think that's what I'm coming around to saying here is hey, keep this in mind. When you see somebody else stop switch hitting, do we should we pay more attention to that? Should that be a bigger news item, prospect or big leaguer, for that matter? Hey, watch this guy. See what happens. Now you want to watch what happens to his platoon splits to make sure he doesn't lose ground there, but maybe it just wasn't working and maybe things are a lot easier for him going forward. Yeah, I just think because if you had that approach and it wasn't working, the overall numbers don't pop, you don't get as excited about that player and here you go. Now you got a guy that only has to focus on one swing. He can actually make more adjustments a lot more quickly because he's not doing twice the work to prepare. Like, I just think switch hitting right. is one of the hardest things to do in sports. Yeah, now you got me wondering too. There was a prospect recently who gave up switch hitting, and now I can't remember who it is. Oh my God. Of course I'm going to remember it as soon as we're done. But God, who was it? Because I want to go check and see what happened. Actually, that is platoon splits fair this year. Didn't I think the Mariners made Anderson Tejeda a switch hitter because he was just so atrocious versus lefties? It's like you might as well not play. So he can't be worse hitting from the other side. But they're those are also they're kids, they're prospects. You can do their more it should be more flexible. It's not like trying to um you can do that a little bit easier or more easily at that point. Also, that was not a case of trying to make take advantage of a guy's speed. It was because He's so bad against pitchers from one side. We have to find any kind of solution for that. But dropping switch hitting, yeah, I feel like we don't see that that much for established. Maybe it just happens more in the low minors or happens before guys get into pro ball at all. Um, 
Also, I just feel like we don't see that many switch hitters anymore at all, um, which is a whole separate issue. Although, you know, there's a part, old school part of me that's like, ah, Rick Mighty, everybody could hit from three sides of the plate. That's the voice you need to use when you tell people randomly at the airport that you used to work at ESPN. I used to work for a worldwide leader in sports. <laughs> One last player we should talk about before we go. You mentioned a little earlier, Austin Riley's popped 32 home runs so far this year. I, I think the thing that's really stood out to me is that he's hit 302. And I, I'm batting average isn't a thing that I care that much about, but I didn't think his profile was going to lead to a full major league season where he'd be at that level even though there were some stops in the minor leagues he hit 282 as a 21 year old at triple a over 75 games so maybe i should have took that as a little bit more of a, an indicator that it was it was possible uh, the plate discipline got a lot better last year in the shortened season even though the slash line didn't take a step forward that was the one thing that drew me to riley back during the spring but how sustainable is this output for Austin Riley going forward? Is he a regular fixture in the middle third of this great Atlanta lineup? Yeah, I think he's a five-war player going forward. And I, I talked to Austin and talked to some people with Atlanta, and I wrote a whole piece about him too, about how he just completely turned himself around. And You could even, if you go through some of the pitch data from last year too, he still had pretty clear weaknesses, and he, he just closed them. You just cannot beat this guy the way that there was a, pretty clear book on Austin Riley coming out of 2019. It's still mostly worked in 2020. And this year you might as well just pulp that book because it is useless now. And he's just, he's laying off so many pitches that were just destroying him previously. And to me, he's a great model for lots of teams now to say, you know, you've got to be looking, if you're running player development for anybody, you have to look at your system and say, who do we have who could be our Austin Riley, right? Is there somebody we have who has fairly clear deficiencies in his approach at the plate that we can target? You probably have five of those guys, but who also like hit the ball really hard and have natural power. And in Riley's case, plays a position very well too, which also, you know, give Austin credit. He was not a good third baseman when he started in pro ball. He's become one. He is, it, it's a, what he's done, even though it's pretty rare, should be a template for other teams working with player development because you only need one, right? You take an Austin Riley who is a replacement level player or below at the start of the season and you have an all-star. That pays for a whole lot of effort. That pays for five coaches' salaries going forward. And I think because Riley's approach is um, is so good and he's very aware of it, talking to him, I don't talk to a lot of players too because often it's it's not helpful and it just sort of makes me like the players as people and then that's not good for my job, right? Because then I actually do get feel like I'm maybe biased. And I like talking to Austin. He was a great kid. Um, but he also recognizes, like he can speak so clearly, um, so concretely about the changes he's made and things he needs wants to still continue working on. When you find a player who's got that in addition to the physical ability that Riley has too, not only do I think he's going to stay as he is, I think he'll probably get better. I think there's probably still one more step up for him. And maybe that makes him a top five player in the National League at some point in the next couple of years. He's still young enough to get there. Is there a, a player that you've seen here in 2021 who might be on a similar track to have a breakout like the one Riley just had in, in 2022? Oh, God. Um, can I defer that question until like, I don't know, March? Fair. Actually, if you want to know who's going to break out next year, look at guys I, that thought were going to break out this year because I'm constantly <laughs> one year behind on these guys. It's like, it's been ridiculous. It is, I mean, I'm, I, I 
say it as a joke, but readers have pointed this out. Like I'm constantly a year early on guys, which I guess is good, better than like some guys just never do break out at all, obviously. And I'll miss on some of those guys, but at least some of these guys break out like eventually. So, um, God, who would I think of now? I, I mean, to be honest, I spend a lot of time doing the before that breakout column, trying to like, dig into some of the batted ball data and play discipline stuff to try to find some kind of evidence to justify maybe gut feelings on players. So I don't know. Maybe I'll think of a good name afterwards. I, you know what? I, I will say this. I mentioned Dylan Carlson. It's coming. I don't know what year. Maybe it's next year. He had a nice rookie year. There's absolutely, he's going to be an all-star. I think that kid's going to be, he's going to get on base a ton. He's going to have plenty of power. Um, I don't know when. And if I say next year, it's probably going to be a year after that. Yeah. But he's somebody I feel extremely strongly about. He's going to be very good. Yeah, I think the who's the next Austin Riley. It's an unfair question this early, but it's the kind of question. Yeah, I, how I, dare you? I, I spend most of November and December how, trying to solve that. I, that's like I, I enjoy the playoffs in October, and then it's mm-hmm. more of okay. Now it's going to happen next, and, and by like November sixteenth, I'm sitting here eight o'clock in the morning, tweeting some stuff about some guy's play discipline and how I think it's going to matter and it's going to lead to a breakout the following year. So I'll, November sixteenth, eight a.m. Pacific time, with a cup of coffee. I will share my thoughts on Twitter. Who I oh, think that's that, when in about six weeks. <laughs> I want to hold you to that. Yeah, are we still doing shows? Do we even know? I don't know how often we're going in November. People were asking on Twitter, and I I don't didn't mean to just not reply to friendly questions. We are doing shows in October each week. I think once we get to November, the schedule lightens up a little bit. We're on once or twice a month, and then it picks back up again sometime probably around February. None of that is written in ink at this point, but that's the. That's the plan at the, the last time that I heard of the plan. So if you're enjoying this show, please take a moment to leave us a nice rating and review. We'd really appreciate it if you did that. New subscribers can get in for 50% off at theathletic.com slash baseball show. Check out Keith's awards column, everything else he's got going, plus tons of great baseball stories down the stretch. I think there's a Corey Brock piece looking at the Mariners. Are they good or are they lucky? Maybe it's a little bit of both. They have uh, made things a bit more exciting in that AL wildcard race down the stretch. On Twitter, he is at Keith Law. I am at Derek Van Riper. The Athletic Baseball Show is back on Monday. Have a great weekend. 